there are two facts about Christianity that set it apart. One is the resurrection of Jesus. There's no more corroborated fact in ancient history than the resurrection of Jesus. No matter what you've, you've seen or heard, there is no more corroborated fact in ancient history than the resurrection of Jesus. Over 500 people saw him alive. The tomb was empty and no one disputes that. Somehow, you have to account for that. We talked about that last week in the past couple of months. We talked about somehow you have to account for Jesus. You have to ask the question, who is Jesus and what are you going to do with him? But the second fact that sets Christianity apart from, uh, from anything else, any other religion, is the exploding of the faith immediately after Jesus' death. You would expect after a, a, the ministry of a charismatic leader that everybody followed and and celebrated, you would think that after his, what would be, what would sound like and look like his humiliating death, that you would think that his followers would scatter. And that's actually what happened. We see that happened immediately after Jesus was crucified, even before he was crucified, his disciples, those close to him, scattered and ran. But something happened. Christianity, the faith, didn't die. In fact, it exploded. It exploded so much that it covered the whole Roman Empire. It turned the world upside down. Within a couple hundred years, Rome Rome had to acknowledge that there are so many Christians, now we may as well be a Christian country. Christianity, the faith, didn't die after Jesus' death. He rose again and something happened in those believers. Something happened in those followers that were around him that changed them and exploded in the face of incredible pressures. It wasn't an easy place, an easy time for Christianity to spread. There were incredible, powerful, external pressures that were trying to keep and tamp Christianity down. These Jesus followers down. The Jewish leaders didn't believe, didn't like it, and they did everything they could to oppress it and hold it down. The Roman leaders, as they started to to figure out what was going on, they didn't like it either, and they did whatever they could to tamp it down and to keep it down. It wasn't attractive in that who, who were the people who were the earliest followers of Christianity? Well, they were from all over, from all stripes, but the majority were the slaves or the indentured servants. It was the, the lowly, the peasants. Those were the ones who were the early Christ followers. So you have a religion that was unappealing to the Jews. You have a religion that is unappealing to the Romans. And the people who are following it aren't exactly the cool crowd that you want to be a part of. It's the weak, the poor, the slaves, the overlooked. It wasn't a popular religion to join. And yet, somehow, it did explode across the Roman Empire and beyond. We have people in our midst who could trace their faith back to Thomas, who took the faith to India, the Apostle Thomas. That's the amazing thing that we see. And it's not just that... that that it spreads so quickly and they cross cultures and ethnicities and people flock to it. The incredible thing is the type of faith that we see. You see, the gospel of Jesus wasn't received begrudgingly or by force. It wasn't by people who said, well, I, I guess that's who, what my mom and dad were and that's what I have to be. It didn't come by force, by gunpoint or at a spear saying, believe, confess Christ or don't. 
Instead, it was the opposite. It was usually embraced happily and freely by people, even when they had to face the spear or the lion or oppression or suppression. We see in these early followers that the Christian faith produced freedom and happiness and joy in those who believe. So much so, we see it played out so remarkably in the way that Christians viewed life and death. Christians, people who held the name of Christ, poor, uneducated peasants and indentured slaves, they were so so joyous, so joy-filled in Christ that they willingly endured torture and faced death. Not only that, but they faced it with singing. We have stories of people facing the lions, being torn apart, singing hymns and praise to God. They gladly suffered for the name and the sake of Jesus Christ. They were outcasts, but they subjected themselves to plagues. Nobody liked them, and yet they subjected themselves to plagues in order to care for those who were sick and who were dying that nobody else wanted to touch. They took in strangers. They gave freely to those who had need, and they loved freely. And they did all of that with a peace And a joy that caused even hardened people around them, even hardened pagans, to melt, their hearts to melt. The only thing that explains this phenomenon, the only thing that explains that kind of spread of Christianity, and not only the spread, but the joy and the freedom that those poor, persecuted peasants experience, the only thing that explains it is the phenomenon of the resurrection of Jesus. See, something happened then. Some power was released then that, that, that had, some, some power was released then that raised him from the dead, but it also released a power within his followers that changed them too. It was a, a power that released, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We just celebrated that last week in Easter. And there was a power that changed his followers. I heard a lecture this week, or part of a lecture this week. Um, it was really fascinating. It was about this man who was a, uh, he's this professor, he's a nerdy kind of guy, but really interesting to listen to. He started out as a musician, but he ended up going to Rome, and he ended up studying the catacombs under Rome. The catacombs under Rome, there are a hundred miles or so of tunnels buried in the stone underneath the city of Rome, where they buried the early Christian followers. They estimate there's somewhere between 160,000 and 500,000 people buried in the catacombs under Rome. Many of them were these Jewish, or were these, were these peasants and indentured slaves, the kind of nobodies. And he went there because he was an art major and he wanted to study the art that was in the catacombs. As they would bury them, they would, there's anything from primitive scratchings to elaborate, like elaborate paintings and sculptures down there. And he wanted to see, what is it like? And he said, I expected, as I was going down there the first time, I expected to find that these are poor Christians. They were facing persecution often and now were dying. You would think that the, the art would be dark. He said, actually, the art was joyous. You would think you would see crosses. Because that's, the, that's become the sign of Christianity. But actually, in the 10,000 pieces of art underneath Rome... There are no crosses underneath there. You know what there are? There's 500 depictions of Jonah and the whale 
showing Christ and his death and his resurrection. The art that predominates throughout the, the catacombs of Rome is not Jesus' death, it's his rising. You see, those early believers not only had found forgiveness for their sin, which is amazing. If you really realized what it meant to be forgiven of your sin, you would stop now and you would sing a song no matter what anybody around you had thought. But they not only realized that their sins were forgiven, they had found a life and a promise of a future life that caused them to go to the grave singing. They found a living hope for a future instead of death. You see, for the past month or so, we've been saying that everyone has to deal with this question. What are you going to do about Jesus? But there's even a baseline question below that that everybody has to think about and everybody has to ask about. And that is, what are you going to do about death? You see, we can and we should ask questions like, what is the source of this universe? And what is the source of life? But when you sit around over a coffee or whatever beverage, talking with friends about what is the source of the universe and what is the source of life, it's easy for it to fall into simply like some sort of theoretical talk, right? Like how many, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? It's easy for those discussions to devolve into something that's simply theory or theoretical. But death is real and it remains. And death is no theory. It taunts us. Every single one of us, death taunts us from the end of our life. We don't like to think about it. We push off those thoughts. We ignore death. Anything that we can do to ignore death, we will do. Or we deny it. We fight our mortality. We ask these questions, how can I stay younger? And we spend billions and billions of dollars trying to do it. You know what the answer is? You can't. How can I assure that that I'll live a long and healthy life? We spend billions and billions and billions of dollars on it. And you know what the answer is? You can't. Every single one of us, from an unknown fate, death taunts us and calls to us. We don't like to think about it. We want to fight it because why do we want to fight it? Why don't we want to think about death? Because something inside us knows there's something not quite right about death. We know that's not the way things should be. It's not the way things ought to be. Yet these three facts hang over every single one of our heads this morning. Number one, the certainty of death. Death is certain. There's no, there's no alternate path out of this life other than death. Death is certain and it is final. The finality of death, isn't that part of what scares us? It might be what, hey, what pain will surround my death, but it's really the finality that taunts me and scares me. And then also what I call the sneakiness of death. We don't know when it comes. It's not programmed in like 78 years and then all of a sudden on this particular date, you're going to die. So you kind of work your way there. You don't know. We don't know when it is or how it happens. And so death rules over all our lives. It haunts our living. So if that's true, 
What could have happened that changed the outlook on life and death for these early Christians? These early Christians who lacked medicine like we have, that lacked doctors and health care like we have, that lacked a lot of the knowledge that we have. What is it that changed them? And we see it here in Jesus' address to Martha. Mary and Martha were, were sisters to Lazarus. And Lazarus had gotten very sick. And they all three were close friends with Jesus. And they sent word to Jesus. They said, Jesus, our brother Lazarus, is sick unto dying. He's about to die. And the text says something interesting. It says, Jesus loved him, and therefore, he did not go. That'd be a whole other, we don't even have time to unpack that. Just write it down, and we can talk about it later. Jesus loved him and therefore did not go. Because some of you, you're waiting for Jesus to come and fix your situation, but he loves you and therefore he has not answered your, your prayer the way you thought he would, should answer it. And then when Jesus shows up, he finds that Lazarus has been dead for four days. Four days. He is dead, dead, dead. And Martha comes to him, and we don't know what tone she took when she said it. She said, Jesus, I know if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. They'd seen Jesus heal many people and do many miracles. If you had been here, I know he wouldn't have died. Whether she was accusing him or whether she was still expressing faith in the middle of doubt, but she said, I know that even now, God will answer anything that you ask. But we know that she wasn't expecting Uh, This miracle that we see happens to happen because whenever Jesus gives the instructions later on, her and her sister are like, hey, this is not a good idea. And Jesus replies to her and he says this. He says, your brother will rise again. She said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I, I know he will. And then she goes back and she grabs Mary and she says, and she says, Mary, the master, Jesus wants to talk to you. And so Mary goes and she, she goes to find Jesus and the mourners, some of them were friends, some of them were family and some of them were paid because there's a wealthy family. Some of them were paid. You would pay to have mourners to show the, the, how sad everybody was about the passing. These, some of them paid mourners then followed her to Jesus. And when she shows to Jesus, she comes up to Jesus, she falls down on her feet and she weeps and cries. And then all the mourners around her, they, they start weeping and crying, which is understandable. And what we see interesting is that it has an interesting effect on Jesus. It doesn't have the kind of effect that many of us would expect. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That that wording there, that's nice in the Bible language. It means Jesus was miffed. Jesus was angry. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not have opened the eyes of the blind man? Could could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again. Jesus miffed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And maybe you're familiar with the story. He says, move the stone. And they say, Jesus, I know he's our brother, but by now it's been four days. 
He does not. I love. I, I learned this verse in the King James. By now he stinketh. <laughs> it's not a good idea. They roll a stone away, and Jesus calls out Lazarus, and he comes forward. But the question is. The wording here shows that Jesus was overcome with grief and anger. Why? Why was Jesus overcome with grief and anger about this situation? Well, we think that he was angry and, and grieving the effects of sin and death, first of all. He shows up and this is his friend and these are his friends, his, the sisters of the, his friend that are grieving and crying and weeping. And all these others are weeping and crying and grieving. And he knew, I've come to fix this. But yet he sees the brokenness of the world. He sees the effect of sin and death on those that he loves. And it causes him to grieve and to weep. The picture of brokenness and sorrow grieves the heart of God. Did you know that? He's not above it. That's the whole, one of the whole messages of the incarnation or Jesus taking on flesh is that, G, is that God does not look at us from afar and say, well, I hope you guys down there, you little ants, figure it out. He enters into our ant-like world and he says, your brokenness and your sorrow grieves my heart. He was a man of sorrow and well acquainted with grief, we heard last week. Do you hear that? Your brokenness and your sorrow grieves the heart of God. When Jesus shows up into your hurt, into your sorrow, into your grief, his heart turns as well. He grieves for you and he grieves with you. But it also said he was angry. Why was he angry? We think that he was angry at and grieving the effect, not only the, 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 the effect of sin and death among the people, but he was angry and grieving the effects of the unbelief of those that he saw around him. Martha told Jesus that she believed her brother would be raised. That was the Orthodox Jewish belief. They believed that, that when you, there were some Jews that didn't believe it, but majority of Jews throughout the, throughout the history, they believed that whenever you died, if you were a Jew, one day you would be raised again. Your whole body, not just like your spirit would go to dwell with God, but your whole body would be resurrected. They, they, they believed that, and she believed that. She believed that the body must be resurrected for salvation to be complete. That, and that's true. Your body must be resurrected for your salvation to be complete. You are not simply a spirit or a soul. You are an embodied human being with spirit, soul, and body, however you divide those. All three or all two parts, however you divide it, all of you fell in the fall. And all of you must be redeemed for salvation to be complete. She says, yes, I believe that. I believe that my brother will be raised again on the last day. But Jesus got angry because they placed their belief on some, some resurrection that might happen and occur at some point in some way that they didn't know how instead of seeing I am the source of life and therefore I am the source of resurrection 
Yes, the body must be resurrected in order for salvation to be complete. But Jesus shows up and he says he waited. He shows up four days after Lazarus is dead so he could show them, I am the one that can call the dead out of the tomb. And I am the one who you can find life and resurrection and hope is. Why does that matter? It matters because if you, if you have a hope to be resurrected, your hope must be in something or someone to do it. We're not talking about just some reincarnation or where you appear or your spirit keeps on existing in some way. What we're saying is that after your death, at some point in the eternal future, God is going to call forth you to be joined with your resurrected body and be made whole and saved completely. A body that is no longer racked by sin, that is no longer racked by by disease or by death. A, A body that is no longer weak and uncomely, but is glorified as God intended you to be. And for that to happen, it must have someone or something must cause that to happen. Nobody naturally on their own just resurrects themselves. It is impossible. We're incapable. Someone has to do it for us. And that's why Jesus says, look, I, I know you say one day your hope is that your brother is going to be resurrected on the last day somehow by some way. But I'm telling you, I am the one, the guy who is with you. I am the one that created the heavens and the earth. I'm the one that breathed life into Adam in the first place. I'm the one that holds your life and your body together. I am your master. I am the savior. I am your Lord. I am your God. I am the resurrection and the life. If you want to be resurrected, if you want hope for a future, there's no other hope than in me. Not in some ethereal hope about I hope that one day I'll be resurrected it has to be in me that I will raise you I am the one that can do it and only me I am the resurrection life yes believe in the resurrection but it's me he's saying that's the source of all life Within me, he's saying, is a continual nuclear fusion, an explosion of life and power. He is self-existent in all power and all authority and all life flows from him and to him and for him. If you have me, what he's saying, then you have all life and power that you could dream of. But if you don't have me, you don't have any hope or any access to any life or resurrection or future. And so in that, what happens is the raising of of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus becomes a picture of Jesus' mission and power. He says this, here's what I want to show you. He prays to God. He says, God, I thank you that you always hear me. I know you always hear me, but so that you could show them that you hear me. I, I pray that this would happen. And he calls for Lazarus to come forth. He shows I am the one, my mission was to come to call the dead back to life. And my power is fully capable to do it. If I can do this, this is what he's saying. This is the subtext. This is my my version of his wording. He says, if I can do this with a body that is four days dead, already decaying, already smelling, with a body that will, after I call him forth from the grave, will turn around and die again, Think of all that I can do for you after I have died to make payment for your sin once and for all. Think of all that I can do for you. 
If I can call a decaying body out of a tomb with a mere word, think of what I can do for you after I've taken your sin upon me. Think of all that I can do for you after I have been raised forever by the mighty hand of the Father. Think of what I can do for you. Think of what I can do for you when I've been given a glorified body and I'm seated at the right hand of the Father and given a name that is above every other name that at my name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that I am Lord. Think of what I can do. Think of what I can do having conquered Satan and death and the grave, removing their their fangs from my children. Think of what I can do for you whenever you are facing the threat and the haunting of death. Think of what I can do for you when I am seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning until all my enemies are made a footstool beneath me. Think of what I can do for you. Think of what I can and will do for you if you will only believe in me. Think of what I can do. I, I came on a mission. What was the mission that Jesus came on? Luke 19, 10 tells us, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's Jesus' words himself. He said, This was my, my mission. I came to seek and save that which is lost, those which are lost. I came to, to bring life, in other words, to those who are dead. I came to call the wandering children back to the Father. I came to find the wandering sheep, the lost penny. I came for the prodigal son to bring them back to the Father. And this is eternal life, that they know you, he said, when he's praying to the Father. This is eternal life, that they know you, the one and only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. Not simply to be rid of disease and death and to go on living forever. Can you imagine, like, look, as much as death may be so fearful, can you imagine facing an eternal life exactly as you're living right now? Would that be good news? Probably not. Maybe you're like, hey, I'm pretty good right now, but I'm going to tell you, with a little bit of life experience, it's not so great. Can you imagine eternal life? Forever knowing and being in fellowship with the God, the Father who made you, God, the Son who saved you, and God's Holy Spirit within you. Being able to taste of his goodness and his glory and his life. Being awash in his love and his grace and his mercy. Seeing continually new levels of the vistas of his wonder and majesty, tasting of his glory, experiencing his beauty, seeing new levels of who he is. Can you imagine what that eternal life must be? And that's the mission of Jesus. There is no life, there is no true life outside of him. Oh, you can have a heartbeat and a breath. You can, you can breathe in and you can breathe out. You can go about and have a career and a family and hobbies and do whatever you do with your life. You can have relationships. You can do all those things you can live, what I'm saying, without really living. But you can't escape the rule and reign of death apart from him. Your hope can't lie in the general life after death. Your hope can't lie in a general resurrection because how can you trust in that? Your hope must lie in a person. We have a cross up front. I've been thinking about this this past week or two. I think it's appropriate still. 
But I think one reason they didn't have crosses on any of those catacombs under, underneath Rome because they didn't appeal to the cross as they were going to their death. They appealed to the person of Jesus as they went to their death. And they could do so with confidence because of the cross, because of his sacrifice, because of his payment. But they could go singing and confident, not because they're trusting in some measure of grace that was given back in some point on some hill in Jerusalem that I've never been to, but because Jesus Christ, the living one who I've tasted and seen that is good, holds Don't appeal to his work. Don't appeal to his cross. Appeal to him directly. Appeal to him. Maybe that's why you don't have peace. Maybe that's why you're wracked with anxiety and fear all the time. Because there's measures in you that are either resting on your own goodness or hoping that there was enough grace given to you back there instead of resting in the person of Jesus holding you and keeping you. And the one who called Lazarus out of the grave to be the one whose hand draws you to the Father when you take your last breath. And whose voice will call your body back up out of the grave from whatever disintegration it appears and call your body back together and unite you with him on the last day. Jesus said, you see, I am the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, he says, though he die, yet shall he live. You see, Jesus isn't offering a salvation that means simply when you die, you get to go up to heaven. Well, it's true. Being absent from the body, we're told as Christians, being absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, the salvation that Jesus offers you isn't one that just means when you die, you go to heaven. It's deeper and more complete than that. He's saying those that believe in him will be fully saved. Your body will be resurrected and made whole and glorified. And our hope and surety of that is because our Savior was resurrected. Our Savior's glorified body was paraded for hundreds of people to see. And our Savior's resurrected, glorified body is now at the right hand of the Father. And he is in that body making intercession for us continually ever before the Father. See, salvation is incomplete without the resurrection of the body. Do you believe in Jesus? Not just about him. But do you believe in him? If so, are you resting in the one who is the resurrection? Not in some hope that maybe that will happen, but resting in him who is the resurrection, that he was resurrected and he is resurrected for you. The past few months, I brought this new wording that I wrote from a book I read into my, into my uh, prayers. It's, that God, it's not that God, thank you that you died for me, but Christ, I thank you that you are dead for me and you are risen for me. He is ever presently dead for me and ever presently alive, resurrected for me. You are his if you are trusting in him and he is yours. And the one who called Lazarus from the grave will by name call you. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and 43. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. Your body is perishing. 
Some of, some of you were looking at you. You were here whenever we started this deal, and neither Dale nor I had to wear glasses. Some of you were a lot healthier than you are now. Our, we see our bodies are breaking down. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Ne- like ramen noodles. Never to go bad. It's sown in dishonor. Hey, there's some of you that look in the mirror and you're like, this is honorable. Most of us look in the mirror and like, this is dishonorable. Even at our best. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but raised in power. And like Paul, if that is you, believing and resting in Christ, then you can do what Paul does and you can taunt death. That's what the heart of the believer does. This is what we've read about those when we're talking about those early believers who sang as they were going to their unrighteous, unjust, painful death. You know why they could do that? They could taunt death because they could say, like Paul, they were assured in their soul. They were tasting life. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then it shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You can taunt death. The believer can look at the end of their life and say, look, I don't know. It might be today. It might be tomorrow. It might be painful or I might go peacefully in my sleep. It might be before I want to go or it might be long after I wish I could have gone. But here's what I know. Death has no sting for me. The grave has no victory. Because Jesus Christ, who am I placing all my belief and trust in, he holds me and he has conquered death and hell. And he has defanged them from their power towards me. And they're gnawing at me. They're coming after me. I will succumb to death. But they will have no final victory or sting. My pain will be swallowed up. The imperishable will become, will be, the perishable will become imperishable. I will be sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, but raised in power. The mighty power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead will course through your veins and your body and your bones and bring you back to life forever to live with him. Fully united. No more at war within yourself from your sin and sickness and disease. He says he'll dry every tear from our eyes. To be resurrected and to be in the presence of God forever in a new heaven and a new earth that is remade by the hand of God for us to subdue and glorify him by, I don't know what. Yes, there'll be singing. But we'll work, oh, it's going to be great. But we work, we'll work without the sweat of our brow anymore simply because it's our passion. We will run and not grow weary. We will walk and not faint. The Christian, hear this, the Christian lives in the, in the borrowed, the Christian lives in the given life of Christ. That's what the Christian lives in. The Christian lives in a life that came from someone else. It came from him. Christian, live there. Enjoy it. Celebrate it. Exult in it. More fully, enjoy him. 
celebrate him, exult in him. But not only that, Jesus says, not only does I give you a promise that as I was resurrected, I will resurrect you. But he says this. Did you hear this? Jesus, Jesus says, I am the light. Not only says he said, I'm the resurrection. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What does he mean by that? Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What he's saying is this. Not only will your body be resurrected, not only will your salvation be made complete, but those who believe in Jesus have a new life coursing through them now. Eternal life dwelling within you by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. He's saying that those who believe in him won't even taste death. What he's saying is that those who believe in him have already entered into, we will be fully resurrected one day, but we have already entered into his resurrection life now within our beings. Those who believe in him are, what he's saying is, are really living. We are tasting and experiencing, or should be, his eternal everlasting life now. He says this, death cannot kill them. It has lost its threatening power, it's lost its sting. Belief in Jesus brings confidence and courage. It's the birthright of those who are part of the kingdom of God. So if I say that, then what about this? What if I don't have that confidence? What if I don't have that courage? What if I don't have that assurance? What could it mean? Well, it could mean something like like it did for John Wesley. John Wesley had preached many sermons. He had visited prisoners. He had cared for the poor. He had even went on an extended mission trip. Yet on the voyage, voyage, on the boat, as he was riding, they hit a terrible, terrible storm. So much so that the passengers were crying out in fear. He was crying out in fear. He was a, an ordained minister of the gospel. But he looked over and there was a group in the boats who were not crying out. They were singing. There's a group of Moravians who were singing praises peacefully and joyfully in the middle of the threat of their own death to God. And he thought, I don't have that. And he wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert others, but who will convert me? You see, Christianity isn't about simply believing the right things. It's about believing in Jesus. And there are probably some of us in this room who've carried the label Christian, been around the deal for a long time. You know what Christianity is, and yet you don't believe in Jesus. You believe about him. And you're like Wesley, visiting prisoners, caring for the poor, but yet who will convert you? That's what you need. You need to be converted this morning. You need to call out to Christ to save you. You need to believe in him for the first time. 
You may not have this confidence if you're a Christian, if you have a lifestyle of sin and rebellion. Is your lifestyle under the lordship of Jesus? Are you in communion and fellowship with your Savior? There is no life apart from him, but your rebellion can choke out his voice. Or maybe you're worldly minded. Jesus described a sower sowing the seeds and he said that, that sometimes the cares of the world come in and choke out the life. Where you're entranced by pleasure and luxury or just caught up in the mundane busyness and pressures of life. And it's, you let that be the big thing in your life and it squeezes out a sense of assurance and confidence and life in Christ. Or you're self-reliant, self-satisfied. Maybe you've been able to achieve much in your life. You're disciplined and you're capable. You're the captain of your life. But one day there will come a storm that you cannot conquer. Death looms ahead. Your body will decay. Why would you try to cling to false anchors that hold you when Christ is the only one who's sufficient? That's another big picture. Hundreds of them throughout the catacombs is a picture of an anchor. Jesus Christ was their anchor that held them in the middle of the storm. Where have you placed your belief? That's really what all these things tie into. Jesus said, believe in me. Where have you placed your belief? What are you resting upon? Here's why it's about belief, because you can't make it happen. You can't will yourself to the kind of confidence we're talking about. It only comes from you believing in and on the person of Jesus. Believe in him today. Believe in him and you can have life now and resurrection to come. Believer, he's yours He's the resurrection and the life. You will be raised. You will never taste death. Worship him today. And if you're not a believer, why again would you continue to hold to a false hope? Fall to your knee today. Confess him as Lord. and Call out to him for salvation. You'll find that he is the resurrection and the life. You'll experience that kind of confidence. That comes from him alone. I'm going to pray and we're going to celebrate communion together. I view every week as we partake this, I view partake, taking the, the wafer and the cup in my hand and then partaking it. I view that as an anchor for my soul that because I'm placing my trust in the body, in the blood, in the person of Jesus to hold me and keep me. Uh, we're going to do it a little bit different this morning. We're still going to have the two stations, one on each side. If you're a believer in Christ, wherever you call church home, we welcome for you to come and partake this morning. What we're going to do this morning, though, if you take the, the wafer and the cup and take it back to your seat, uh, after we finish this uh, song, then Tyson is going to lead us. We're all going to partake of it together as a picture that we don't partake of Christ individually. We together partake of him together as a community by one common body and one common blood of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that you do not leave us to the pains of death alone, but you offer us resurrection and life. 
that is only found in Jesus. So, Father, I pray that you would grant us repentance for seeking it anywhere else. That any of us who need to have broken hearts this morning to return or come for the first time to Christ as Lord and Savior, that they would do so this morning. I pray you would break the power of of sin. I pray you would break the lies of the enemy that would hold people back. Oh God, break our hearts for seeking life and resurrection anywhere other than you. God, give us that kind of confidence and living hope that is our birthright as believers. In the name of Christ we pray.